Welcome back. Uh, thank you again, and, and welcome to our uh, uh, C-SPAN audience who are joining us now at the inaugural Cato Institute Surveillance Conference. Uh, just as a, as a quick program note, unfortunately, um, Faisal Gill was stranded in Vermont due to the weather. The, the flights back to DC were canceled. Um, so uh, he, unfortunately, won't be joining us. And Chris Segoyan uh, was delayed, but will be uh, arriving in a few minutes and, and join us in medias res. Um, uh, the uh, second panel, uh, though, of course, uh, when we talk about surveillance, NSA and intelligence surveillance are uh, often foremost in our minds. Uh, the technology they use and the um, ideology of large-scale collection uh, and data mining uh, are finding their way to your local police department as well. Um, in a, in a way, you're more likely to be surveilled by your local police department than by an essay, probably. Um, and so it's important not to be focused on the, uh, you know, the, the sexiest and glitziest forms of surveillance, but, uh, but also um, the, the small but persistent surveillance that is uh, happening at the local level. And so um, to discuss that important topic, I'm very pleased that we have uh, Jack Gillum of the Associated Press, which certainly knows something about being domestically surveilled. Thank you. Hello. Hi, good morning. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, I'm supremely awkward at these events, so I apologize in advance for that. Um, I'm, so again, I'm Jack Gillum with the Associated Press. For the last year, year and a half, I've covered uh, technology and surveillance, uh, particularly how government uses uh, that surveillance even to setting up a fake social network in Cuba uh, using the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, the last panel, we obviously talked about foreign surveillance. This time, there's something that's really, that really hits home, and that was what's happening in the United States. Not just with NSA surveillance, of course, but what local police departments are doing with that data. Um, just the other week, uh, I think it was an Eric Garner protest in Chicago. Uh, there were people tweeting a, um, an Office of Emergency Management vehicle in Chicago, uh, from the city of Chicago, that had driven by, that had miraculously started disrupting people's cell phones, and this wide speculation that this was uh, an MC catcher or a Stingray device that gathers uh, data on, that, um, on those devices in the area. Uh, whether or not the city of Chicago would be transparent if people file FOIA requests and what they're doing with that information is, is interesting. Um, I wanted to sort of introduce the panels here. Chris Segoyan, uh, principal technologist uh, at the American Civil Liberties Union, is running a little late. When he arrives, uh, we'll get right into it. But I wanted to introduce some folks, and I'm going to read so I don't screw up anybody's job title. Um, to my left is uh, Harley Geiger. He's uh, the advocacy director and senior counsel for the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, to my right, Pat Eddington, a policy analyst for Homeland Security and Civil Liberties here at the Cato Institute. And on far, my far right, Warren Kerr, a law professor at George Washington University. Um, so I'd like, to, I, we're going to sort of have a, a, a free discussion here. We're going to leave about 20 minutes for questions just because there, I'm sure there's a lot of interest in this. And these are fine experts up here who I'm sure would be would love to answer those questions. Um, so I'd like to start out by sort of asking, and maybe we can start with Oren, this idea of that we are sort of, this paradoxical idea that we are in a both a surveillance society, you know, this, the, you know, the NSA or domestic law enforcement will scoop up what they can with or even without a warrant, 
that juxtaposed with this idea of going dark. A few months ago, the FBI director had said, you know, had pointed out four cases, and we'll get to that in a minute, and saying that, you know, using cell phone encryption, encrypting a device, using secure messaging is really going to be damaging for law enforcement. And I'm just curious if we can sort of start out by, by framing it that way about how these perceptions and even, you know, uh, even the technologies are sort of fueling these sort of dichotomous perceptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two perceptions can be true at the same time. Um, what we're seeing is a shift from a world in which the government would traditionally collect physical evidence and eyewitness testimony, and instead they're often collecting digital evidence, and that means data that's out there, and sometimes they can collect a lot of data that is not that helpful to them, and they might want to do that anyway. Sometimes they can't collect the data that they really need to build a criminal case. Uh, so you can have, a, on one hand, the government is not able to solve certain cases they used to solve, maybe is getting more data than they used to get in other contexts. So we're seeing a real shift. Uh, some cases, some investigations are, are likely to be successful more than before, others less more than before. And, and, and an example of this I think that's interesting is uh, the computer hacking statutes, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, that's the law that, that regulates all computer hacking in the United States. And if you uh, go online, you're probably aware there's a lot of computer hacking that goes on. So how many criminal cases does the United States bring every year for computer hacking or unauthorized access kind of more broadly, well, the number is remarkably low. It's about 70 or 80 cases a year and has been for about 20 years. And that's because these cases are extremely difficult to investigate. From the FBI's perspective, they just can't find the people who are behind these attacks. It's just very difficult to attribute the wrongs. So from their perspective, they say, well, the internet has made it much harder to do our job. We're you know, going dark technologically. It's just tougher. And yet, there are other ways in which there's much more data available to the government in other cases. So I think we're just seeing a shift, and we're trying to work out which, which of these narratives is true, but they can both be true at the same time. Curious your thoughts, Pat. Well, what I think is really interesting, um, and this kind of goes to what's happened with respect to the Snowden revelations, uh, in addition to the other, these other things that, that Oren has, has referred to, is what I've referred to as a digital resistance movement, right? So this comes in the forms of things like um, uh, secure messaging applications. NSA, take note, I use SureSpot. Um, you have things like Wicker. You have clinics that are being put on to teach the public how to engage in, in encryption, use encryption, things of that nature. And we've seen a real rise in this. And that's also been concomitant with public polling, and I've written on this earlier this year, that shows folks are actually changing their behaviors because of these surveillance activities. So they're not necessarily going to websites that they would otherwise have gone to. Uh, they're not necessarily associating with people that they otherwise would have associated with. And I think it's important to understand that in these cases, we're not talking about people who've been charged with any crime, either those who are thinking about writing about something or engaging with somebody, or the individual that they're potentially thinking about trying to engage in a dialogue with. So when I hear folks talk about a lack of real harm or there's, you know, NSA surveillance is essentially benign because Americans are not deliberately targeted, which I think is a very dubious notion, but even if you take that on face value, just the act of government surveillance itself is having a chilling effect on our society, and I think we need to have a much more robust dialogue about that. Now, when we, we think about government surveillance, we, of course, talk about the NSA. And, and there's a lot that local and state and federal law enforcement are doing, particularly the FBI. I'm curious, Harley, if you could speak to some of these you know, apps like Wicker, other of these secure apps that are sort of becoming, not sort of, they are becoming mainstream. And this push now that even tech companies like Apple, their new iOS 8, is encrypted. 
Um, I'm just curious, sort of that evolution of that that public policy, where even you know, even my mother now, who doesn't know anything, partly follows the news, knows that there's you know, Barack Obama might be sniffing her emails. I mean, this is part of the public perception now, and I'm curious to see how tech companies, how CDT is sort of responding to this. So your your original question you would ask about. Um the perceptions of going dark versus living in a surveillance society, and I think that they feed on each other. And this is, uh, we're, FBI is complaining that we're going dark in part because of the things that you just mentioned, you know, encrypted operating systems and, and secure messaging systems, et cetera. Um, but people are taking these on because they think of themselves as living in a surveillance society. And, and it feeds the going dark perception and causes the government to then take on more and more intrusive surveillance uh, techniques. And uh, in the absence of reform, I don't think that this is going to be a helpful cycle for, for anybody involved. And I, if I may, and this gets to the issue ultimately of trust in governmental institutions, right? That's one of the reasons that we're seeing essentially this explosion of this kind of technology is that folks increasingly simply don't trust the federal government um, with respect to their personal privacy, their data, and all the rest of these things. And I agree with Harley, it's a cycle that needs to be broken, and the only way that it's going to be broken is when folks on the, on the federal government side begin to understand that they need to actually be held to a high standard when it comes to these kinds of investigations. And what companies are doing right now is an absolutely appropriate response in the absence of any real reform. So thus far, Congress has done virtually nothing, really virtually nothing to rein in what we know from the Snowden disclosures, which shocked the entire nation, shocked the entire world. And in the absence of that reform, companies are, and individuals are taking matters into their own hands and encrypting and securing their data. We think that that is a great response. So, so Harley, if there were reforms, would you tell people to stop encrypting their data? Or? I think that, that I, we would not tell people to stop encrypting their data, but I think that there would be less urgency felt by both uh, consumers and businesses to encrypt their data to the degree that they are right now. I think that, I mean, we've, we've seen an explosion in secure uh, apps, secure systems since the Snowden disclosures have become a lot more popular. I think that they've become popular because of that, uh, because of the Snowden disclosures, because there is the, the realization now that, uh, that we are under mass surveillance. And I'd also make the point that a lot of uh, the services that are out there, I avail myself of a virtual private network or VPN in order to help um, kind of hide myself from hackers, essentially. Uh, and try to protect my data that way. So I, I, even if we manage to get the government's uh, surveillance programs kind of put back in the box where they belong, there's still going to be a need, I think, an increased need, in fact, for uh, these kinds of technologies just to per, uh, protect us from other malicious uh, actors. I'm sorry. Well, I, th I think that's an important point to make in the whole going dark debate, which is, uh, in our view, the use of strong encryption, while it will make... It will cause some difficulties for law enforcement to get data. Overall, it will increase the security of regular users beyond just those who are already security conscious. It'll help protect them against cyber criminals, uh, phone thieves, etc. And so overall, we think that it is a net good for society. And that's an interesting debate because when, when the FBI director, I believe it was mid-October, had brought up four examples, which I know the AP, the Intercept, and others have sort of you know, to put it politely, at best, we're, we're, we're dubious in terms of these examples in which, you know, law enforcement really needed, you know, encryption was really going to hurt them. You know, there is the issue of, say, you know, 20 years ago, even now, if people don't have an iPhone, if they don't have WhatsApp, they're using SMS messages and they're in the clear, they're stored at a cell provider for any, you know, finite amount of time. 
that could be, be subpoenaed and pulled. And one investigator, you know, I talked to about a, a, an investigation that said that, you know, it was because of those SMS messages that we were able to get off of the phone that they, you know, we were able to sort of force through a plea deal. I mean, you know, notwithstanding any other, you know, special circumstances, I'm, I'm, I really just, in the interest of fairness, want to address this issue. If say we enter this world where everybody is, you know, everybody uses an iPhone, uses iOS eight, and uses iMessage, which is encrypted device to device, you know, what what does that mean for law? And do they just go elsewhere? Do they go back to the era when you know, sixty years ago, before we even had cell phones? I mean, how does that affect the investigative powers that they have? Sorry. Yeah, I, I mean. Uh, it cuts them back, and then the question is, how does law enforcement respond? Um, I, I mean, I, I look at these issues a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole in the sense that you can kind of say, we'll have more privacy here, but then it's not like the government is going to say, oh, okay, well, then we'll, we'll stop investigating those cases. They're going to you know, try to come up with ways of uh, getting warrants to, instead of access the device, access the device while it's uh, connected to a network. Uh, they're going to they're gonna try to come up with ways to get in. And so it's a, it's a cat and mouse game in which it's constantly dynamic, not static. And we can never kind of say, um, oh, this is, this is now done. And, and you know, it, it, it's generally going to be in the public interest for a certain amount of criminal activity to be in, able to be investigated and solved, right? We would not want a world where you can commit crimes with impunity and they basically can't be investigated. That would be bad. Uh, so there needs to be some legitimate role of law enforcement. And the question, I think, is sort of looking forward technologically, what is that role going to be, is going to be a tough question. I mean, do you think it's a, and I know that there's a, uh, this talk of a golden key, which, you know, any, any cryptographer would say is, you know, that's hooey, this goes back to the era of clipper chip. But I mean, what does that, you know, what does that exemption look like? Is it an encryption backdoor? Is it, you know, forcing somebody to turn over their passwords so they can get access to their phone. I'm, I'm just curious, like, you know, how we also protect people, you know, as Harley says, they want, they want their data secure and they want it encrypted. So I mean, what is the exemption? How do we find that balance? Yeah, so I would imagine it's, it's a stiffer penalties for refusing to decrypt uh, one's own device. There wouldn't be a Fifth Amendment privilege for the most part in these cases where it's known to be a person's own phone. So, you know, I, I think you'll get... Um, it'll be harder for the government to access the device without the person's help, and then the law will probably come in and uh, add extra pressure to push the person to help, uh, uh, not voluntarily, but involuntarily, uh, uh, facing criminal punishment if they don't do that. I think something like that is probably where we're going. So you think that the solution is compelled decryption as opposed to a golden key? Uh, it seems to me that's the better better approach. Of, of the two, I would agree with yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, gold, the golden key idea is, is awful from both a, a business and security standpoint. I mean, it's, it, if, there's, if there's, when we say golden key, we're talking about a backdoor access mm-hmm. into, into encrypted products and services, which if it can be exploited by other governments, possibly exploited by cyber criminals. Um, some, of the, some of the backdoor access, you know, a key escrow will be, will be very good. It'll be very sound by companies that have a lot of resources, perhaps, and less likely to be exploited exploited by, by hackers. But if it's a mandate, which has been something that has been discussed on all businesses, we're going we're to see small businesses, startups, et cetera, trying to build this thing in. There will be a variety of different golden keys and backdoors for different services, and not all of them will be strong, and it will put people in a vulnerable position, uh, not just with regard to hackers, but also foreign governments that can exploit the same backdoor as well. And I, and I think, kind of building on what Harley just said, the other problem that I think I personally have with any kind of backdoor, and, and those of you who were privileged enough to see uh, Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky uh, give, I think, a very, very eloquent explanation of this uh, this morning, will know that 
what we're talking about here when the government wants to try to mandate these so-called back doors into electronic devices is something that represents an absolute mortal threat, not just to the, to the privacy and the individual liberties of Americans, but it's a mortal threat to the tech sector of the United States. And we've already begun to see more than ample evidence of orders here with American companies that were going to be going over to Europe and making money there or in Asia and elsewhere uh, being canceled. This is going to have a snowball effect. And so it comes down to both an, in, an, an issue of individual liberty and privacy, but it's also an economic issue and a jobs issue uh, for folks here. And that's why what the NSA and others are trying to do here, uh, I would reference uh, the Intercept story recently on the so-called Aurora Gold program, where they're trying to basically uh, dig into every cell phone network in the entire world. That is a prescription, ultimately, to see the American tech sector collapse if the government does not get in here and prevent NSA from going overboard in that respect. Trying to sell Asia an NSA-ready phone. There you go. Yeah. I just, we, there, the golden key, or an encryption backdoor, the third way, of course, is the, you know, compelling somebody to give you, you know, to give the government a password. I'm curious for, you know, this is a question for, really from a legal perspective, where does the case law stand and say, you know, hypothetically, I come across the border in a Fourth Amendment-free zone, and the government or a police officer, whoever says, you know, I, you need to give me this password to unlock this device. I mean, what rights do I have in that situation? Yeah, it depends on the circumstances. So sure. if, if it's a cell, you, you need to, the, the legal issue here is really whether being forced to decrypt, whether to be forced to enter in your own uh, code is sort of forcing yourself to it's forcing the person to testify about something or what are they implicitly saying and whether they're saying something that is known or is not known already. So if it's someone's cell phone and they're, um, it's clear that it's their phone, right? They, it's their known number, you call the number, it rings from that phone and it's, 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 it's in what the law would call a foregone conclusion that they in fact possess that phone. In those circumstances, there should not be a Fifth Amendment privilege uh, that blocks the government from ordering the person to enter in the passcode. On the other hand, if it's, say, a laptop computer that uh, is using TrueCrypt uh, and it's not clear if there's actually encrypted data on, on the computer, telling the person, use, you know, give me your, your decrypted data, which may be on this laptop, that would trigger Fifth Amendment privilege because it's not known whether there is, in fact, any decrypted data that's ultimately being hidden by TrueCrypt. So, so it really just depends on the circumstances. It's a messy answer, but as with most interesting legal questions, it just depends. <laughs> The, now, I mean, when we talk about this debate, we, we've gotten a little into the encryption route. Is it, I mean, this is not, we're not talking about these issues in the abstract. I mean, these are very real issues. I mean, we can, if, if a, a consumer, somebody wants to password protect or, you know, they want to encrypt their uh, data at rest, whether it's on Dropbox or anywhere else in the cloud, there are real world consequences. I know Julian had mentioned, you know, the Associated Press knows something about being surveilled. I mean, my colleagues, um, had worked on a story before I'd come to the AP, and which led to the Justice Department subpoenaing their phone records. Um, and, you know, if you know, Faisal and Chris were here, could talk about their own experiences with you know, government surveillance and um, the government getting access to their information. I mean, this is a very real threat to one where I can personally say that you know, even though my phone records weren't subpoenaed, and this was years ago at the AP, I still have problems sometimes with sources who point to that instance and go, "No way, thanks." We'll you know have a We'll get a beer another day. Um, and I'm just curious if we can talk, and maybe Harley, start with you, these real-world implications of, you know, and why this encryption, you know, why people want encryption, why they want to be protected from the government, and just, you know, and, and sort of what the options are for them out there. I think that people don't know, they don't know how the information will be used against them. 
uh, both now and in the future. And it makes people that could be, whose actions could be construed in a, in a negative or even possibly a criminal or, or, or shameful light very cautious about taking certain actions, whether that's finding, uh, talking to reporters or even looking things up on the internet in order to educate themselves. So there was also a study of how uh, internet search terms has changed uh, since the Snowden disclosures. And I think that this has a real uh, chilling effect on the, uh, the actions of people to, uh, to seek to, for, for intellectual curiosity as well as freedom of expression. And I mean, that is aside from the very large business implications of all of this as well. And I think the, the chilling effect with surveillance is also, it's a little bit tricky because it, in any particular case, you have to be careful distinguishing between a chilling effect caused by an awareness of what the government is doing and a chilling effect caused by fear of what the government may be doing that may or may not be true, or a chilling effect that actually is not directly related to the kind of surveillance that the government is doing. And an example might be the Section 215 telephony metadata program, which is collecting uh, the uh, to-from information involving phone calls that are placed uh, 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 by, by people across the United States. And, and that's not something that encryption can solve because that's just the numbers dialed from the phone. It can't be encrypted because it ultimately has to go to the phone company. Uh, so to the extent people say, oh, the NSA is watching me, I'm going to use encryption to stop that, that actually won't interfere with that particular kind of program. It's part of the reason perhaps that the NSA wants, wants that program is that it can't, encryption can't be used against it. But it, it is, I think, a difficult question. And, and th- we ran into this a little bit, I think, going back to the debate over the Patriot Act, where uh, there were some aspects of the Patriot Act which were actually narrow and other parts that were broader, but some of the narrower provisions were actually reported incorrectly as being very broad. Uh, and then a lot of people were worried about surveillance from the Patriot Act based on what was really kind of misreporting of what the law was doing. And then you say the Patriot Act has a chilling effect. Well, is the chilling effect from the misreporting aspect of it? Is the chilling effect from what the government is doing? It's, it's kind of hard to tease it out. And of course, from the government standpoint, they would say, well, we don't want there to be a chilling effect because we don't want anyone to know of the surveillance, which is not very helpful either. Uh, but it's a hard cause and effect question, I think, in this context. I'm glad you brought up the Patriot Act because I'd kind of like to throw a, a generalized question out there, which is, why was the Patriot Act passed? Right? 9-11. Right. <laughs> so the, the basic frame that the government has presented over the course of the last 13 years is basically this. We had to pass things like the Patriot Act and the FISA Amendments Act and some of these other surveillance authorities because we just didn't collect enough data in order to be able to uncover the plot and get the bad guys. That's one of the biggest lies, and I use that word advisedly, to come out of the post-9-11 era. 9-11 happened for one reason and one reason only, and that's because federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies failed to do their job of utilizing the information they had at their disposal, which was more than enough to actually uncover these plots and prevent them from happening. And that's not simply my opinion. That's the opinion of the, of the 2002 Congressional Joint Inquiry, and of course it was the central uh, point of the entire 9-11 Commission inquiry itself. So that's really what I keep coming back to when I talk about surveillance issues generally, whether we speak about the the foreign aspect of this, the domestic aspect of this, which in a globalized communications age is, is almost a meaningless distinction now. Congress passed laws to address a non-existent problem. It's not like that hasn't happened before, but it's had an incredibly distorting effect on our society. 
And that's why I think we need to go back and put the emphasis where it really needs to be, which is on forcing the government to actually do its job with the available data. They didn't need the 215 authority of the Patriot Act. They didn't need any of the Patriot Act, <clears throat> in fact. And if you go and, and do as I did when I worked on Capitol Hill and also when Harley was there, I went to, in October of last year, I went to the Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, and the Government Accountability Office, which are the three support agencies uh, for Congress. And I asked a very simple question. Can you point me to any public evidence, particularly evidence offered by a federal agency or federal official, to indicate that any of the 152 provisions of the Patriot Act have thwarted any terrorist plot against the United States? And the answers I got back were no, no, and no. And if you step back and think about it, that makes perfect sense. Because it wasn't a lack of information collection that was the problem. It was the analysis and the dissemination of it that was the problem. And we know those problems are still with us because we saw it in the Abdel Mutalab case, the infamous underwear bomber case, and we saw it just last year with the Boston Marathon bombing case. Those are the problems that our government should be focused on. And that's another reason why we need to roll back these surveillance laws in order to get them focused on the right problem. And let me, let me push back on that narrative a little bit because I think there's a different story about what was actually in the Patriot Act. I think it's wrong to say, oh, the Patriot Act is some sort of big, scary thing with bad things in there and it must have been bad and, and expanded government power. I think it's helpful to go through what was actually in the Patriot Act. And let me, let me approach that with a, with a story. Um, around 1999, 2000, I was in the Justice Department uh, in the computer crime and intellectual property section. And I was a group, part of a group of career lawyers. We were tasked with what we, coming up with what we called the high-tech crime bill. It was uh, ways of improving the surveillance laws, which were clearly out of date. A lot of the language was kind of telephone specific. It wasn't clear if privacy protections applied to the internet. And there just a general updating of the laws needed to be done. Nothing that was designed to shift the level of government power, but really just sort of good government updating the laws kinds of things. Uh, and it was understood, I left the Justice Department in the summer of 2001, and the, the understanding was there was some point this would mostly get passed because it was not controversial uh, to the members of Congress who'd taken a look at it. Um, and, but that was, that was sort of the status of things. 9-11 uh, hits, and a few days later, the anti-terrorism bill comes out, and good enough, um, much of uh, some of the, the electronic surveillance parts of that anti-terrorism bill are actually this high-tech crime bill that I'd seen when I was at the Justice Department, which was not about terrorism, but it was also not about expanding government power. It was just sort of improving the surveillance laws generally. And I, I think what happened was this got packaged as the Patriot Act. If you look carefully at what, say, John Ashcroft was saying, he was not saying this was some dramatic expansion of government power. He was saying it was sort of improving the surveillance laws, making sure they're technology neutral, all the sort of more modest claims. Uh, but it, it sort of, in the public mind, took off as this dramatic expansion of the law when actually, it, it's true, it was not about terrorism, but it was also not an expansion of government power in most of the provisions. So, so there's sort of a, in terms of trying to figure out what do you make of the Patriot Act, I mean, do you, do you accept that it was sold as an expansion of government power and say, was that expansion of government power necessary? Or do you look at it sort of piece by piece and say, was this a good idea? Was that a good idea? I think you end up with a different narrative. And, so, and, and, and one exception to this, and one, one part, I think, which really is an important story, is the Section 215 power, which was on its face a narrow, 
unobjectionable authority, it was basically a subpoena power for national security cases, was interpreted in secret by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to allow the telephony metadata program, which I find an extremely unpersuasive interpretation of the statute. So in secret, the modest power was interpreted to be very broad. Uh, and for that, I think we, you know, the who do you blame question, to my mind, we blame the foreign intelligence surveillance court judges that accepted this implausible interpretation in secret, uh, more than we blame the drafters of the statute that drafted a statute that on its face is much narrower. I was about to call out Section 215, so I'm, I'm glad that you did glad it yourself. Because that. That, uh, that, is that is a huge expansion. And, uh, and the, the extreme secrecy surrounding its interpretation in the FISC leads many people to, I think, reasonably wonder what other provisions of the Patriot Act are being construed in a very broad way as an expansion of government power. And I, I think it is important to remember that during the debate over the authorization for the use of military force to go into Afghanistan in 2001, uh, then Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle was pressured heavily by the White House to include language that would essentially allow for the warrantless surveillance uh, of Americans here at home. He refused to do that, and the administration's response was to set up the illegal stellar wind program uh, on the backside. So to me, it, it gets back a little bit to what Orrin was saying a minute ago. Another part of the problem here is a failure overall of congressional oversight to push back aggressively against these kinds of things and to really probe them aggressively to prevent this kind of uh, abuse and excess uh, uh, power. So I, I know it's going to sound uh, a little bit odd for someone from the ACLU to defend the Patriot Act, um, but there's actually a provision in there that we like very much, which is one that protects the right of companies that want to build encryption into their products. And so to sort of bring this back to, the, to where the discussion was a little bit before, uh, and I was watching it in the car, um, <laughs> the companies are actually permitted right, law, right now by law to build encryption into their products, end-to-end -end encryption for which they don't have a key and they don't have a way to surveil. And I think it was really, really smart of Congress to put that in. Um, actually, sorry, it wasn't even uh, the Patriot Act. This was, this was in Calia. Um, but Congress has placed this in, in a law that many of us think is a really bad surveillance law, Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act. Congress had the foresight to protect companies and therefore to protect our rights because none of us build encryption technologies ourselves. Um, Congress decided that encryption was important, that encryption with keys that companies held wasn't very useful, uh, and decided to put, the, put that text right in there uh, in the statute. And, and I think you know, we have to recognize that you know, encryption is there, and strong encryption is protected by law, uh, and then law enforcement basically has to deal with it. And so it's not actually going to just take you know, a little bit of arm wrestling uh, for the government to get what they want right now. You know, a few uh, angry speeches from Director Comey uh, <laughs> isn't going to get exactly what they want. They actually are going to need to change the law uh, if they want to be able to force companies to get rid of these technologies. I want to talk about changing, the, changing laws here for a minute. I mean, so I know, speaking of CSIPs, I know CSIPs is involved. It's like everybody in ECPA reform, ECPA being from the late 80s. Um, you know, even judicial holdings like Smith v. Maryland, what is it, 34 years old? Um, the idea of, of updating, updating these laws to, to be part of the, the Dropbox, the iPhone encryption era. And I guess I could start with Chris, just sort of, you know, where we are in this landscape and sort of, you know, beyond the Patriot Act. I mean, just in terms of just CALEA, you know, uh, ECPA, domestic law enforcement. I mean, what's really the hindrance right now? I mean, the, the situation right now is that, you know, civil society advocates, we, we frequently like to say that Congress hasn't updated electronic privacy laws uh, in 20 years. We have the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act, 
Congress really hasn't given law enforcement any new surveillance powers, any significant new ones to deal with these new technologies. And so what that means, what that ends up happening is that as these new technologies come up, the government has to try and fit the new technologies into the old authorities. And so we have the government using devices like Stingrays, which are these highly sophisticated cell phone tracking device that impersonates a cell phone and collects information about hundreds or thousands of, or tens of thousands of innocent people. And they, you know, they look to the authorities they have and they say, well, is this more like the pen register that we got um, you know, in Title III? Is this more like a wiretap or is it nothing? And so therefore we can use it without any court order. And they've taken all three of those positions at various points. Uh, if, the, if law enforcement want to hack into someone's computer, they say, well, you know, do we use a pen register for this? Do we use a wiretap? Do we use a search warrant? And again, you know, they, they will try various authorities, but Congress has not given the government explicit legislative authority um, to hack, to spy on people's cell phones, to do many of the most advanced surveillance technologies, or to use the most uh, advanced surveillance technologies that are now available. Uh, and so what that means is that law enforcement just puts them into use, using the existing authorities, without telling Congress, without telling the American people, without telling the courts. And to be clear, I'm not saying that Congress should give the government the authority to hack. What I'm saying is uh, they are sneaking these techniques into use because they have never been given any explicit authority. And it's not just Congress either. I mean, if you can talk for a minute, you mentioned Stingrays, these MC catchers. It's Stingray, it's uh, ALPRs, Advanced License Plate Readers. It's what local and state law enforcement are doing too. And there's the, you know, we can get into the transparency. I know we're going to have a panel about that after lunch. But how state governments are sort of grappling with this. I think, was it in Maryland where um, a, a police investigator was asked about it? I think about the use of a, either a Stingray or an ALPR. And he said, that's classified was later reminded there is no classification scheme under Maryland statutes, at least to what he was, was, was referring to. So that, that, was, you know. that was at a legislative hearing, and at a, at a court hearing recently, the, a police officer told a, a Baltimore judge that he couldn't talk about the Stingray technology because it was sensitive homeland security technology, and they had a non-disclosure agreement with the government. And the judge said, well, you don't have a non-disclosure agreement with me. Um, <laughs> and the, the judge actually threatened to hold the law enforcement officer in contempt. You know, I, I think what you're what you're sort of getting at there is that, you know, I think many people, when we saw this, you know, the really, really shocking images from Ferguson and we saw these bearcats and, you know, heavily armored uh, law enforcement agencies, we're thinking, holy smokes, like these are military weapons that have trickled down to state and local law enforcement agencies. And we're, I think many of us are rightly terrified because that there, there are technologies that are appropriate for the battlefield that are not appropriate for small town America. But it's not just weapons that have trickled down through these DHS and DOJ grants. It's surveillance technologies as well. And the, the only difference is that the Bearcat looks terrifying on TV, and a Stingray looks like a piece of hi-fi equipment. But these same grant programs that are funding armored personnel carriers in small-town America are also funding surveillance technology. And it's simply not appropriate for local law enforcement to have you know, intelligence community grade surveillance technology because these devices do not respect the privacy of innocent Americans. And maybe that's okay when they're being used in a battlefield, but right now we have overly invasive surveillance technologies that are trickling down to state and local law enforcement agencies, and it's not happening with sufficient judicial oversight. It's not happening with legislative oversight. Legislative bodies are not passing laws permitting this, this technology to be put in use. And so we're only finding out about it because you know, the police screw up in one place, or the invoice for a surveillance device shows up on the web, or Jack files a FOIA and, and then gets some information. But this is not how 
we should be doing oversight of surveillance. Uh, and this is what is happening right now in America today. I actually think that this is, people talk about chilling effects and point, ask about the harms that are associated with surveillance as it is happening right now. And in some sense, I think that's, that's a useful question. I don't want to diminish the, the very real harms of, of chilling effects. But, uh, but I think that it is very much, I think it's very important to also try to project into the future and think about what our government could be like in a generation or two. We simply don't know. And we also don't know where technology is going to be in a generation or two. We are seeing it become much more intrusive. And we are just going to be exploding with metadata in, in 20, 30 years. And if the laws are not crafted in such a way, if privacy is not built into the law in such a way that we actually have some protection against the uses of that metadata, the collection of it, and uh, the, the uses of uh, very, very intrusive surveillance technology, we will not have privacy. And the chilling effects that we see now will be augmented to a, a shattering degree. And at the point of transparency, I believe going back to the Baltimore case, if I'm not mistaken, didn't the prosecutor in that case rather drop the charges than to have the police detective testify about how that evidence was in, obtained? In that case, I think the judge tossed the evidence. Okay. But we, we know of several other cases where the, where the prosecutors have basically either dropped the case or cut really, really, really good deals with defense counsel to avoid having this technology be litigated. And, and you know, to Harley's point... All the encryption in the world isn't going to stop the collection and creation of metadata. And so as, you know, even with encrypted voice calls, encrypted text messages, there, there's metadata everywhere. All the companies are collecting it by default. And, you know, the big data tools that have been created for the intelligence community, the palantirs uh, of the world, those tools are then trickling down to state and local law enforcement agencies, you know, via these uh, DHS fusion centers and, and, and other efforts. The government is going to have, already has a huge amount of metadata, but they're only going to have more. And so domestic surveillance in five years or ten years will be only aided by the availability of metadata and tools to analyze it. And I think we should remember that as we talk about essentially these electronic surveillance technologies, there are other technologies that are being developed and are currently employed that also raise a lot of issues. Biometric-related technologies, for example. These are extremely scary. Um, and then some of the other technologies that the Transportation Security Administration has employed over the years, those of you who have traveled, who've had the misfortune of, of being, being subjected to additional screenings and things of that nature, uh, the machines in question, some of these machines, specifically the backscatter x-ray machines, um, extremely invasive and also potentially a health threat. And we were fortunate enough that Congressman uh, Holt and Congressman Chaffetz we're able to finally get those machines out of the TSA and out of these airports. But TSA is working on still more technology that's going to be in this arena. And that's another area that I think we're going to have to increasingly spend some time uh, on trying to, to legislate. Let me make a, an annoying lawyerly comment, which is law professors were good at that sort of thing. So, um, you know, the, normally what happens in terms of the process of lawmaking in the area of surveillance, government investigations, is uh, we have the government get some sort of new tool, technological tool, uh, and maybe under prior law it requires a warrant, maybe it doesn't require a warrant or some sort of court order. Uh, the government then uses the tool, either pursuant to the court order or not the court order, and then there's uh, some sort of motion. to In a criminal case, for example, the tool is introduced, the evidence uh, from the tool is introduced, there's a motion to suppress saying this is, uh, was unlawfully used, and then there's some court opinion saying, yes, this was lawfully used or unlawfully used. Uh, the press gets involved, starts reporting on the use of the technique, uh, and then 
then you get some sort of a public reaction to it. Either the public says we're comfortable with this or we're not comfortable with this. We want some sort of statute regulating it. So the, the courts get involved, the uh, legislatures get involved. That's kind of the traditional pattern here. And, and what I think we're seeing is, is actually consistent with that traditional pattern, whether it was you know, wiretapping devices in the 60s, uh, which led to a lot of uh, legislation and, and Fourth Amendment regulation, or pen register devices in the 70s, which led to a Supreme Court decision and then a statute. Uh, this is kind of the normal pattern of things, and, 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 and which is, I'm not saying that, oh, we, you know, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. No, we should, we should worry, but we should recognize that normally what happens is that the law steps in fairly late in the game, at least once we know what the facts are and what's being regulated. Even, for example, ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986, that was a really early example of regulation and sort of the, the cycle of the technology in the sense that the Congress was regulating internet privacy back before most people were familiar with the internet or had even heard of email. I think, you know, sort of back in 1986, that was really early in the life cycle of, of technologies. But um, this is kind of the, the traditional pattern. And so from a public standpoint, I think what we, sh what, we should, what we should be doing is looking for these new technologies, trying to understand what the new technologies are. And, and um, in, in, in the case of Stingray uh, technologies, for example, I think you know, 1983 actions brought against the officers that are using the technologies. You know, this is a great area, for example, for state ACLUs to uh, step in, bring civil cases, to, especially to the extent the government is dropping criminal cases that may involve these technologies, sort of blunting the ability to file a motion to suppress that then gets decided by an appellate court. Uh, civil cases brought that challenge these technologies that lead to cases on how the Fourth Amendment applies to these statutes, uh, to, to these technologies, or how statutes apply to these technologies would be really helpful in sort of furthering the process along. But, but if I can just yeah. jump in, there's a piece of that story that you're missing out, Arn, and whether it applies to stingrays or even wiretaps. For the first 10 years of, of wiretapping history in this country, wiretaps were first put into use in about 1895 in New York. And uh, it took about 10 years for the public to even learn that they'd existed. And that was because the police did everything in their power to keep the public in the dark about the availability of this tool because they argued, well, if people know that we can listen to their phone calls, they won't say things that we want to hear on the phones. And stingrays or technologies like them have been in use since the mid-1990s. You know, until a year or two ago, we only had two instances where judges had looked at a stingray application and written anything about it. This technology has been kept so under wraps, and it's not an accident, it's an intentional effort by the FBI to suppress public discussion or awareness of this technology. And so how does that, how does that system work where defense lawyers challenge them and the courts weigh in and Congress weighs in when the law enforcement community is doing everything in their power to suppress any discussion of this technology? Well, so my recollection is that the Stingray technology was discussed in cases going back 20 years, right? So it was... Uh, Two. Two uh, cases. Right. But to the extent that it's known that it's being used in a case, th this is sort of a... I'm sort of advocating for a, a public interest group, whether it's the ACLU or, or state ACLUs or whoever, to, to bring cases when they learn of these technologies. Right, but the problem used. is we don't, we don't learn. And so, for example, in Charlotte, North Carolina recently, there's been a, quite a bit of controversy about the Stingray after a local newspaper you know, found out that the police had a Stingray device or had multiple Stingray devices, and they, the police said, of course we get, you know, court orders for these things. And then the journalist called up the local judges and said, hey, have you ever approved an order for a Stingray? And the, and the judges all said, we have no idea what a Stingray is, right? And so that process by which the government hides the technology from the courts, 
from the public, from Congress, means that it, it short circuits the, the process that you then described of how we control the technology. And, and you're right, there have been a couple incidents in the last 20 years where judges <coughs> proactively ask the right question and the government said, yeah, okay, actually this isn't a regular pen register. But unless judges knew to ask, they thought they were getting the same kind of order they've been getting for 40 years, which is, go to the phone company and get records of incoming and outgoing calls. And so that kind of secrecy corrodes the democratic process. So with respect to these, these Stingray devices and how they've essentially been employed, if they have tried to use evidence from those in a case, have they engaged in parallel construction or something else in order to hide uh, the technology that's actually being used for the collection? I mean, in, in uh, Florida, we've seen uh, the U.S. Marshal Service advising local law enforcement agencies <coughs> to... Um, when, when referring to information derived from stingrays, to refer to it as information coming from a confidential source or informant. I'm not a lawyer, but that seems pretty suspicious. I, I think that is the kind of behavior that we don't want law enforcement agencies engaging in. But what we do see time and time again are c organized efforts by federal and state law enforcement agencies and the, t and the manufacturers of these t surveillance devices to keep everything about them out of the public eye. And I think that's a big problem. And just a very, before I let Harley jump, just a very brief observation, just as from a journalist's point of view, I think, you know, it's not just the federal FOIA, although you do see um, the Obama administration, particularly when I think there was a case in Arizona, sort of quietly, you know, say, oh, the FOIA applies here, even though it was a state public records issue. Is that under state public records laws, Chicago, other police departments, I filed many of these requests, they come back and go, denied, denied, exempted, denied. Or at best, here's a page where, you know, dear Mr. Gillum, redacted. And like the entire page is basically black photocopies. <laughs> and so, I mean, just I just want to touch on this and I'll let Harley jump in is, you know, how, you know, the public, state ACLUs, the press, re really via that, that First Amendment proxy are able to sort of get at this when, you know, that transparency, you know, whether it's a, a, a judge in Baltimore saying, you know, not in my courtroom, you better turn it over, or a state legislature update in FOIA to their, of their state to say, you need to turn this over. I'm just curious how we're supposed to know this, what that transparency doesn't exist. And I just want to make the comment that, I mean, uh, Orrin, your, your sort of, your recommendation focused more on, on cases and bringing civil actions. Uh, that is beyond the expertise and financial means of most people. And I think that it should not be understated the importance of actually contacting the government yourself, and not just the federal government, but local and state as well. And that is something that everyone can do. And I'm not talking about angry tweets because they're not reading your tweets, you know, or, or commenting to news articles that is not activism. But I mean actually organizing with amongst yourselves and calling up. I mean, this audience, the, the, the surveillance debate needs you. Not just the people in this room, but the people watching on C-SPAN also. It's the only thing that's going to work, is if everybody is chiming in about it. It, can't, it cannot just be up to groups. To bring this back to what we were discussing before with encryption, so imagine hypothetically that, that the FBI develops or buys some technology that lets them intercept and decrypt encrypted messages. Uh, it doesn't really matter how this would work. That technology is going to be really, really useful. It's going to be so useful. Um, it's going to be even more useful because there are going to be people who are saying things via iMessage or FaceTime that they wouldn't have ever said via telephone because they think it's encrypted. That technology is going to be so useful that those agencies are then going to do everything in their power to keep it as close as possible to the chest. And so we're going to encounter this over and over again with every new law enforcement method is that they're going to do everything in their power to keep that technology or that method a secret because they're going to say, well, if we discuss this in court, if we tell defense counsel, it won't work anymore. Right? And so 
what do we as a society do when the sources and methods <clears throat> must be kept secret from us, or the law enforcement believe that they keep, must keep them from us? And particularly, what do we do when those techniques don't just invade the privacy of that one person who's being targeted, but like a stingray, necessarily invade the privacy of tens or hundreds of thousands of people when they're being flown on an airplane over a city. That, you know, the average person is never gonna learn that you know, there was an airplane flying over their house with a device on board that collected information about their phone. They're never gonna be told. Uh, and the, you know, were it not for you know, one reporter working for the Wall Street Journal, we would have never learned that program existed. I'm curious going forward on the courts and where we stand in this. I know that, you know, very recently with Riley v. California, the court was, you know, it was unanimous in its holding about the idea that, and they were very blunt in part of their language, that, you know, if the police want to search a phone, the answer is clear, get a warrant. I mean, this is a very, very clear with that general regard to, you know, search incident to arrest or just in general idea of the police needing a warrant. I'm curious going forward, and this is, you know, mostly for the lawyers up here, but but not necessarily, I'm not going to limit it to that, where we're going to go in the next 10, 20 years. As Harley points out, we have, you know, what what is our society going to look like in 20 years? The people, you know, what is the technology, what is the metadata being collected about us, and what are those protections that if Congress, say, doesn't act with, the with the, say, the USA Patriot Act, where does the judiciary step in? It's a great question. It's probably going to be a wild ride. We saw in the Riley versus California case, uh, the Supreme Court, quite surprisingly, ruling not only, it's a bit of a surprise based on prior law that the court ruled that a warrant was required to search the cell phone, but they did so unanimously. And now we have lower courts entertaining challenges under uh, Section 215, trying to figure out uh, the, the, whether Smith versus Maryland is still viable or whether it should be narrowed in some way going forward. That may, may or may not, but not clear, but uh, may get up to the Supreme Court in the next few years. Um, cases, I think uh, yesterday, the Fourth Circuit heard a case uh, on, or uh, heard oral argument on a case about whether cell site data is protected under the Fourth Amendment. There's now a, a split on this question. The Florida Supreme Court has said it is protected. The Fifth Circuit has said it's not protected. Uh, these are all issues that are sort of percolating and working their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, I think in general, the justices tend to be relatively sensitive to how technology changes privacy. I mean, this is a theme. If you look back, Kylo versus United States from 2000, the thermal imaging case, uh, Jones versus United States, the GPS case from 2012, and then Riley versus California uh, in, in uh, just this past year or this year. Uh, those are all cases where if you just look at the case law, the precedents, you'd assume the government won, uh, would win. And those are all three cases where, in fact, the government lost. And in Jones and in Riley, they lost unanimously. So the justices, I think, are, are generally attuned to these concerns and lower courts as well. So, so we're seeing Fourth Amendment law evolve. And you know, if we had a functioning Congress, I think you'd see Congress really active. Unfortunately, the statutory picture here is... Is, has been sort of caught up in the broader dysfunction of Congress. You see more action at the state legislatures. So one example would be the license plate readers. I think I read recently that 12 or 13 states have, in the last few years, enacted some sort of regulation of data collected by license plate readers. And that strikes me as a natural topic for legislation. I mean, if, if our governments are collecting all of this data, what are they doing with it? How long are they keeping it? When are they analyzing it? All these are sort of important questions. That, that should be asked, and at least some states have started to ask these questions. But so I, I think I think the legal system is is responding in its slow and cumbersome way. Uh, slow, it's happening. It's just obviously it's delayed. Slow, cumbersome, and and very mysterious sort of way. I mean, it's it's fragmented. Also, the, the Jones opinion 
to me, it was, it was a win, but it's also, it's very murky. It does not really offer a clear direction in terms of where they're going with this. I think that they're gonna be, they're gonna avoid the third party doctrine and the reasonable expectation of privacy only for so long. And they're gonna to have to deal with it because it makes absolutely no sense in an age of technology. It is, uh, our, our Fourth Amendment is supposed to protect from unreasonable searches and seizures and the third party doctrine now justifies very unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, but drawing the line in court is gonna be very tricky. I think, and uh, court. One of the, the big problems with courts, unfortunately, is that a lot of their rulings are very narrow. Uh, Jones for is, is a great example. They, they, you know, had that ruling on the narrowest grounds possible. You know that uh, put, putting the tracking device on the car was a search. That was that was it. Um, and they could have been much more much more broad with that. So it's very hard to tell. Um, but they're going to these these issues are going to come more and more to the fore, and I think that they're going to have to grapple with them, and they're going to be begging Congress to do something about it. Let's hope that Congress does a great job. <laughs> it's interesting, Jack, that you, you bring up the Riley case, the, the cell phone search incident to arrest case, because you know, I was reading all the briefs in that as they were being filed, and at the very, very last stage, at the point at which no one else could respond, the government then raised the issue of encryption and said, oh, encryption is this huge threat, um, you know, we don't have time to get a warrant if someone's phone is encrypted, and you know, the, the moment they type in the, the, pan, uh, the, the, moment they type in the, the PIN number, that's when we need to, to get the phone. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of odd that the court didn't really pay too much attention to that, but I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. But, you know, a year later, uh, Apple does this big change. And, you know, I, I can't help but think that had Apple and Google announced their changes before uh, the, the Riley decision came out, it, it might have looked uh, a little bit different. But even with the decision that we got, the Supreme Court really did leave the door open to exigent searches, um, searches without a warrant, when technology made it necessary. Technological threats like encryption. The court didn't spend a lot of time there, and it basically said, well, you know, there are these existing exceptions to the Fourth Amendment rules for exigency. They will apply here on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, I, I'm interested, you know, in, in hearing Oren's thoughts on this. I mean, my fear is that where we're going to get, because of both the availability of the technology, because of the fact that, you know, it's, the devices are being built to be more secure, that we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in, in a world where we're going to have law enforcement agencies sort of sitting, uh, agents sitting in unmarked vans, waiting to pounce, and then the moment they see the target pull out his or her phone to make a call or, or read an email, that's when they will jump on them and, and grab them and, and push them to the floor to get the device while it's unlocked. And I, and I, think, I think Riley pushes us in that direction, and I think technology pushes us in that direction. Uh, because though that kind of seizure when the device is unlocked means that they can avoid all the other issues we discussed before, whether it's compelling someone under the Fifth Amendment or you know getting uh, getting backups from the cloud. If they can get that phone at that briefest moment when it is unlocked, then they get everything that they need. Well, and that's what they did with uh, Dread Pirate Roberts, right? In the the Silk yes. Road case. In the Silk Road case, he was sitting at a public library in San Francisco, and they. They, they waited until he had logged into his computer, and then they... Disguised used, as bookshelves. And then they used a lot of force. And I mean, I think, you know, what we're going to see is an increase in force uh, in, in cases of computer or, or, or other device seizure. Is, is my paranoia crazy? Yeah, or? I don't know about the, the added use of force. I don't see how that fits in. But I, I, I agree with you, though, that from a law enforcement standpoint, if you have probable cause to arrest someone and you think there's evidence on their phone, you know you're going to need a warrant to search the phone, but you think you're not going to get access to it if the phone's not in use, but if the person happens to be using it, you'll get past the, the, the passcode. I agree law enforcement will, will you know, a, a smart 
FBI agent will wait till the person's using the phone in order to, to do that. Um, I, I think that's right. Part of this, though, I think depends on a, a question that, here, I'll push it back to you. We'll go back and forth. Um, uh, empirically, there's going to there's be a question of how often is the government really stymied by encryption, say, in the iOS 8 context? How often are they going to be able to bypass it, either through encouraging someone, hey, you really, you know, give, you ha give me your passcode. The person might give it up in that context. It may be that most of the time that happens. Um, sometimes maybe they'll be able to guess, uh, uh, guess it and get through that way. So there, there is this question of how often is iOS 8 really going to stymie investigations? And it might be that it's not that much of a barrier to law enforcement, in which case the claim of exigent circumstances becomes weaker. And it may be that it actually is a barrier, in which case the claim of exigent circumstances becomes stronger. So to some extent, that, that question you asked sort of depends on the tech, the legal question depends on the technological question of how much is actually going to stop the government. Yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised when, when the Attorney General and then uh, Director Comey both criticized Apple and Google. Um, I was surprised not because these two top law enforcement officials were criticizing a company, but I was surprised that you know, in, in the last five years that I've been watching the going dark stuff unfold, and this is not the first time that the government has complained that companies are rolling out technologies that make life more difficult, I've never once seen the government call out a particular company by name. Not because they don't want to offend the companies, but they don't want to tell the bad guys, just use this one technology and then we won't be able to monitor you. It, it's, it's, all, it's, it's been consistent that they will talk about classes of technology, peer-to-peer -peer <coughs> technology, or IP addresses for phone networks, things that are causing problems for them. But they've never once said, and this particular carrier or this particular app is a huge problem for us because we're not able to wiretap it. And it makes sense. They would be idiots to broadcast to the world uh, uh, the area in their armor that is the weakest. And so I was thinking, why are they calling out Apple and Google by name? And you know, the best theory I have, and I really, I'm, like, I'm speculating here, but the best theory I have is that what the Attorney General and the FBI and, and the, the broader national security community are worried about is not the disk encryption on the device. Because as, as Aura notes, that's probably not a huge problem. There, there are cloud backups, there are people choose bad passwords. I actually don't think that disk encryption is gonna be a major problem for law enforcement. Not, not the kind of problem that would, would warrant the FBI director and the Attorney General going on national TV to criticize companies. What I think they're really worried about is the end-to-end -end encryption of uh, voice, video, and text communications in Apple's iMessage uh, I and FaceTime services, the new encryption that WhatsApp has built into their product and is now used by 300 million users. I think that the encryption of real-time or ephemeral communications is the thing that, ter that terrifies law enforcement because it means that wiretaps no longer work very well. Uh, and I think that what they're looking for is a way to apply pressure to these companies they're looking at, for a way to direct the attention of Congress and, and other folks at this sector and at this problem without actually telling the public it's this particular technology. We are concerned about encryption, but it's this. They don't, I don't think they want to say it's this part of the Apple product portfolio that is the one that's really causing problems for us. And, and on the issue of real-time voice, video, and text communications, yeah, I think it's going to make life more difficult for law enforcement, and that's sort of the point. It's also going to make life more difficult for, for criminals to spy and for foreign governments to spy. Um, but I think that technology will be uh, impactful in a, in a way that I don't think any of us have really sort of imagined. And I, and I do think you know, either the wiretap numbers are going to start to drop, or we're going to start to see 
uh, a usage of hacking by law enforcement that we've never seen before. <coughs> because if they can get malware onto your phone, uh, then it doesn't matter what's encrypted because they get the microphone, they get the webcam, they get everything that's going on through that device. And you know, we've been involved in, in an effort recently where DOJ has asked the courts for expanded authority to hack into computers uh, around the world. Uh, and you know, I, I think the response to encryption from law enforcement isn't you know, an increased use of orders compelling people to, de to decrypt data. The natural response to encryption is hacking. And it's going to start with the FBI, where, it, where it's already at, and it's going to trickle down to the DEA and the marshals and every other federal law enforcement agency. And then just like state and locals have acquired Stingrays and ALPR devices, we're going to see state and locals get hacking tools. And I think so the future of law enforcement, particularly driven by encryption, is a world in which every law enforcement agency either has hacking tools or wants hacking tools. And the, the, the AP knows a thing or two about the FBI impersonating the Associated <laughs> Press to install malware. Um, so we have about 10, 15, 10 minutes left. I just, um, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, there's a microphone over here. So we, uh, if we have, just if somebody can pass the microphone around and then we can ask questions. the Stingray material, people know about it now. Why isn't Congress acting? They've taken some steps um, with the introduction of legislation. In some cases, it's passed committees. The problem is that it's just never gone over the finish line. Uh, there is actually a lot of legislation in Congress right now that touches on one surveillance topic or another or one you know, computer crime topic or another. Some good, some very good, some bad, some very bad. Uh, the problem is actually getting it through Congress. And congressional leadership has proven to be an incredible bottleneck, an incredible bottleneck there. And the, 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 as I tried to, tried to say before, the, the best thing that could happen for moving it along is for people to stay mad about it and to contact Congress. I mean, it sounds almost simple, but that's, that is a very powerful tool if enough people do it. I, I would just add to that that um, this year you saw a perfect example of what Harley was describing. Uh, the most promising, one of the most promising reform measures actually got passed by the House, and Congressman Massey referred to that uh, this morning. But you have a circumstance where the House leadership on both sides of the aisle uh, are very pro-surveillance. I mean, they, they've bought into this meme that I discussed uh, earlier today about Collecting more being the answer when it really isn't. And uh, I can't emphasize strongly enough what Harley said. Members of Congress need to hear from everybody about this, that it is, in fact, a priority for Americans. And that's the only way this is going to change. It, it's going to take a lot of public pressure because folks in the national security community, they love having these authorities. It's just that simple. And they're not going to give them up without a fight. Now, we have at least seen... Uh, three letters go out in the last month from senators uh, to the Attorney General and to the Secretary of DHS demanding answers about stingrays. One letter from Senator Tester that went out this week had, ted, had 10 additional senators signing onto it. So that's a pretty good sign. Uh, we've not yet had a, a hearing on stingrays, and I, I really do hope that we will get a hearing at some point on stingrays. I, I've testified at state hearings in Texas and Michigan on the stingray technology, and in those states, the uh, state representatives were furious to learn about the technology, particularly when law enforcement either refused to come and testify or wouldn't answer any questions at the hearings. 
Um, we would love also to get uh, letters out the door by congressional offices about hacking tools and hacking techniques. And we'd love to see a hearing focused on, on hacking because I think you know, when members of Congress learn that the FBI can control someone's webcam without the light turning on, I think that would make for a great C-SPAN moment. Uh, I hope someone will, will decide to make that happen. If, just here, if, uh, if we can wait for the microphone, too, because speaking of C-SPAN, we, we have viewers joining us there. Um, if you wouldn't mind to state your name and affiliation, too, and just speak in the microphone if you have a question. I think you, sir. Sure. My, uh, my name is Paul Wagner. I'm with Beyond Systems. Uh, you all have discussed uh, the, the increasing use of uh, encryption, or likely increasing, increasing use of encryption end-to-end. And so that, that would, it seems clear uh, the surveillance uh, agencies are going to want to target the devices themselves of the end users. Uh, and so I'm uh, wondering what, uh, what, uh, how, how can end users trust uh, the, well, it seems like they'd want to go after, for example, the operating system or even the hardware outside the encryption stack. So I guess how, how can an, an end users uh, possibly trust uh, the companies of Microsoft, Apple, or the Intel, uh, Motorola, uh, you know, in, in the face of secret orders or, or they themselves might voluntarily uh, uh, interact with the government? Do you see any, any cause, any reason, any way we can trust them, whether it's through open source hardware, software, or any, some other model? So I, I know this is a law enforcement panel and not a national security panel. I mean, I, I think in the national security context, there, there is good reason to be concerned uh, about the financial relationships between large US um, chip and uh, other equipment companies and the intelligence community. I think it's I think it's troubling when you have a government services division of a company that makes the chips that, that power the encryption uh, uh, that we all use. I think that, that creates a serious cause for concern. But even if there were some capability that these companies were either building in or revealing uh, information that would make it easier for the government to intercept, I don't think that those capabilities are going to be used in the law enforcement context. I think that, you know, if there's a, a secret backdoor in Intel's random number generator chip, uh, random number generator feature in their microprocessor, it's not going to be given to the FBI to use in a drug case. So I think you know, the, the average person doesn't really have any reason to fear hardware backdoors or, or, or that kind of thing. I think, you know, where it comes to trust, what, what worries me the most is that you know, for good security reasons, we now have automatic security updates in our web browsers, in our operating systems, in the app stores that we all have on our smartphones. Uh, and that means that the Googles and Apples and Microsofts of the world have the ability to push software updates down to their customers. And again, that's normally used for good, good reasons. There have been you know, a few sort of incidents in the past where these companies use that ability to like remove books from people's devices. Amazon famously removed copies of 1984 from people's Kindles um, a few years ago. I'm, I'm very, very concerned that at some point uh, one of these tech companies will receive an order compelling them to deliver malware to a target uh, under the guise of an automatic security update. I'm very, very worried about that. We don't have a copy of that kind of order. We've not had any information to, to suggest that that's coming. But you know, these companies do have the ability to update software on our devices. And I think, you know, as the devices get more and more secure and they get locked down by the companies and the users, law enforcement agencies and, and their allies are going to look to any leverage they have. And that ability is one that is so powerful. I, I cannot imagine that they're going to not use it at some point. I think there's a gentleman down here. Had his hand up. John Petty from uh, McLean, Virginia. 
I disagree with the panel's earlier discussion where they talked about a back door being sort of a, a way out to find a compromise between the issues being raised. <clears throat> uh, prevailing encryption systems use static keys. They're server-based. And a back door is just as open to a hacker as it is to the FBI. And uh, inviting that is uh, just open sesame to the hacker community. There is an alternative, one that's an ANSI standard approved for 15 years, endorsed by the industry and te technologist anyway. Uh, it's a key recovery system where the, it's a, stat it's a dynamic key and not static. It's not server-based. The network owner can regenerate a key at any time. And that can be responded to by warrant or the court of judgments. So you have a control system and a balance between a, a um, in broad encryption system that's available for national security reasons under approved laws, and it's administrable. So what, what this gentleman is describing, this key recovery, that's another name for key escrow. That's the system that was proposed during the uh, first it's crypto wars. Key, key escrow, because this key escrow thinking is a static key. I'm talking dynamic key. Uh, okay, so the, the distinction so here is, is that your employer or the government has, uh, has a, a mechanism, has a, a, some kind of, of key mechanism built into your device such that they can then, on a case-by-case on no, case basis... No, sir, the, only the administrator of the network has control over that key. It's a, a dyna dynamic key creation. Regardless of who has the additional key, whether it's the administrator of the network or your employer or Apple computer or the FBI, if there's an additional key, there's an additional target that people will go after. And I, and I think the computer security community is in widespread agreement that we don't want any more keys. The only person who should hang on to your key is you. And you know, it, I think those, those tools have been available in the market and they haven't really been adopted outside of enterprise settings where there's probably a legitimate use for them, which is you know, if an employee quits, you want to be able to get the data if they won't give you their password. I'm sorry, um, that analysis is not correct for a dynamic key situation. Well, most security experts that I've spoken to d don't want to have anything other than a key held by the user. Um, there's a gentleman right here. Uh, uh, Will Amatruda, I'm sure it's not just judges who haven't heard of Stingray technology. Uh, Mr. Segoyan, could you give a 30 to 60 second uh, description of what it is, what it does, why we should be afraid of it? <laughs> sure, and then I think there's a woman behind him yes. who would like to ask a question. It's a little, um, dark, a little dark up here on stage, so it's hard to so see. So the, the quick version of a Stingray is that it exploits the, a fundamental security flaw in the older generation of, of cell phones, which is that your phone has no way of proving that it is talking to an AT&T tower. Any tower, any cell phone tower, or any device that, that is effectively a tower can, can decide what it wants to call itself. It can call itself an AT&T tower. It can call itself a T-Mobile tower or a Verizon tower. And you don't have to be Verizon to call your device a Verizon tower. And so the Stingray impersonates the cell phone infrastructure of the phone network. Uh, it show, you know, the, the FBI drives into a neighborhood. They turn it on. It has a higher signal strength than any legitimate tower nearby. 
and suddenly all the phones in that neighborhood say, oh, look, there's this, there's this new tower that I hadn't seen before. It's got great signal strength. Let me use that for my calls. And in the process of that happening, it causes every cell phone in the neighborhood to identify itself to that Stingray and reveal a unique serial number. It, can, it then allows the Stingray to locate those phones. Um, and in some cases, these devices can be used to intercept incoming and outgoing calls, incoming and outgoing text messages, and even internet connections. And so for all intents and purposes, the government is your phone network when they're using this device. And, and of course, when that happens, they also disrupt the normal functionality of the phone network. You may not even be able to make telephone calls when this device is in use. And so it's, it's very disruptive. It's very invasive. It requires um, a degree of, of impersonation or masquerading that you know, I don't think is appropriate. Uh, and, and then on top of that, its very design requires that the government send penetrating signals through the wall of your house to reach the phone that's inside. <laughs> so I, I think that the idea that the government can drive through a neighborhood and send signals through the wall of innocent people's homes in order to find that one bad guy down the street, I, I think that's a step too far. Thank you so much. My name is Courtney Raj. I'm with the Committee to Protect Journalists. And I have a specific question if you can talk about the law enforcement threats to journalists and to lawyers who really depend on the ability to you know, discuss in confidentiality with, with their sources or their clients. Um, and I think that the issue you raised about pushing out uh, malware is a real one. If you remember in Dubai, um, the government, the you know, government-owned telecom pushed out uh, malware to our Blackberries. I was working as a journalist there. And, you know, we only knew about it because foreign reporters who weren't working in a repressive country were able to report on it. Um, so that's, you know, a really important dynamic. But, you know, the ACLU and Human Rights Watch did a very important mm. report. And I just think it's important to raise the specific threats to um, human rights, or sorry, to lawyers and journalists and hear about those threats. I mean, I'll let Jack answer in a second because I think you probably have your, your own thoughts. But I'll, I'll just say that you know, one of, the, one of the great things that's happened post-Snowden is that uh, journalists are now starting to take digital security seriously. And, uh, you know, I, the use of, of email encryption is now widespread among national security reporters, I think. Uh, that definitely wasn't the case two years ago. And, you know, in some cases, I, I had to help people. Uh, and my friends and colleagues had to help people. But I think the journalism community has really come a long way. Uh, the legal community has not yet come, uh, come that, 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 in that direction. Uh, still... Uh, the number of encrypted emails I get from lawyers who don't work for the ACLU is very, very small. Uh, the number of uh, legal organizations who encrypt their websites, who offer encrypted telephone uh, services to their clients is very, very small. And you know, sadly, lawyers don't seem to do anything until a failure to do so is, is deemed to be you know, unethical action. And so what we really need is for the ABA the American Bar Association or the National, Criminal, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers to put out statements saying that lawyers need to encrypt. Lawyers need to you know, use email encryption, use telephone encryption. Um, but the journalism community is moving in the right direction. I think the, the main problem right now is that still many of the tools that we have are not very easy to use. And so uh, text message and voice encryption are basically idiot proof at this point. And that, I'm really happy with, with where things are going there. But Email encryption is still a nightmare, and, and sharing encrypted documents between reporters is still very, very difficult. Right, and, and just very briefly on this, because I wanted to ask Orrin, you know, by proxy, a question, is, you know, journal, the Snowden disclosures and national security is but one very small area 
insensitive reporting that journalists do all over the country and all over the world. I mean, at minimum, I've talked to sources at state governments, companies, you know, private firms outside of the intelligence community where, I mean, it's, they may not go to jail, they may not face 20 to life or something for disclosing this, but they have a mortgage to pay, they have bills to pay, they have a family to feed. And, you know, and, you know worst case scenario, journalists, as you point out, in hostile countries, I mean, here, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to live in a country where maybe the worst that happens to me is not the, not saying it's a it walk in the park. I get held in contempt. I mean, we're talking about people dying and disappearing. I mean, if this information is made out of sources of ours who disappear in the middle of the night because a government intercepts it. And the question I had, we talk about lawyers. I'm just curious from a, a, a legal perspective is what this surveillance means for attorney client privilege and how when the government sort of does this mass surveillance, you know, how that's protected and how that works. Uh, it totally depends on which mass surveillance you have in mind, and um, <laughs> so it's sort of a hard, hard question to, to answer. I mean, I will say on, on the journalism question, I think, to my mind, there's been a little too much emphasis by the press on how victimized the press is by investigations that involve leaks to the press. Uh, the press is very good at defending its interests uh, in in such cases where, I mean, we have, a, we have the, you know, the basic problem, it seems to me, is that leaking national security secrets... Uh, to the press is a crime, and so naturally the government is going to investigate the leak, and then the reporters on the other end of that leak, and so it it, it creates you know the, the reporters getting awfully close to the crime, right? So so it is a question how how does the government investigate those cases? Some would say the government should not inve- investigate those cases; that should not be a crime. But if we accept that that is a crime and should be a crime, which I think is is the only way to have a classified system uh, where we have some secrets that are classified, which should be the case then naturally reporters are going to get close to that. And I think there's been some miscoverage of investigations in which, you know, I guess it was the affidavit in which an AP reporter was described as somebody who'd committed an offense. And and that got totally blown out of proportion. It was really a phrase that was required under a statutory authority, the Privacy Protection Act and a Justice Department approval process that did not mean that the reporter was targeted. It just meant that there was a part of a checklist that had to be covered in a language that ended up in an affidavit. So I'm not totally convinced that these are as severe a, a problems as the question suggested, but at least in the attorney-client privilege question, it just totally depends on, on the nature of the surveillance. I, I definitely have a slightly different view, and yes, Julian, I will be brief. Um, we, we absolutely need to have an ironclad uh, shield law for journalists, uh, certainly at the federal level, I would argue at every level. And if you want a poster child for why, just take a look at the Jim Rising case. Um, it is an excellent example. It's hardly the only one. But my problem with essentially making an argument that we need to have wide latitude, essentially, for prosecutors to be able to go after folks in cases like this, is that the only reason we know that unconstitutional surveillance has been conducted against each and every one of us is because of Edward Snowden being willing to go to to folks in the business that Jack and others are in. And we need to be able to find ways, ironclad ways, I think, to make sure that those journalists are essentially untouchable when they're doing their reportage on this. And that, to me, is the, the great vulnerability we have in the law right now. Thanks. I, it pains me to curtail uh, an interesting conversation I know could continue, I hope will continue, uh, at lunch upstairs uh, in, our, uh, in our cafeteria. Um, I really hope that you will join us back here uh, at 1 o'clock sharp, uh, where we'll be joined by uh, Google Chairman Eric Schmidt, uh, NSA's best frenemy. Um, 
we have a, a really a fantastic afternoon lineup. We have a, a secrecy panel uh, with uh, Siobhan Gorman of the Wall Street Journal. We have a panel on reform and limits to surveillance with Ellen Nakashima, uh, and then a, uh, a very special closing session that you will kick yourself if you uh, if you miss. I promise uh, with Julia Angwin. Uh, and after all that, um, we'll have. Uh, uh, basically booze and uh, instruction in privacy tools uh, with a really great uh, series of, uh, of tech experts who will uh, walk you through how to use technologies to, to protect your privacy. So thank our panel again, please, and join us for lunch. Thank you.